Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. All right. Good morning. So, um... I know sometimes we turn the AC units off so that I am more clearly heard, Um, but as I'm talking right now, how does this sound? I'm going to try to really project, okay? Um, I'm going to do my best. If I start to do that thing where the end of my sentences starts to decrease in volume, just go like this, talk louder. Well, it's good to be up here again after two weeks away. Um, I hope you enjoyed hearing from John Van Patella and Andy Ober. I know I did. Uh, Today, we're starting a new sermon series on the letter known as 1 John. And if you want to follow along in your own Bible, 1 John is very close to the end. It goes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. So go to the end of your Bible and then back up a little bit. Those last few books before Revelation are small, and uh, follow along um, with with me. Now, before we read the passage, I want to share a little bit about the context of this letter. This will help us to understand it uh, as well as possible. Now, tradition says, as you can probably guess, that this was a letter written by John the Disciple. Uh, This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. It was probably written after the Gospel of John, probably not too long after. So a guess would be maybe around 95 AD or so. So John would have been a very old man at this point, probably around 90 years old. And uh, that might help to explain why sometimes in this letter he refers to his audience as dear children. Right? When you're 90 years old, everyone feels like a kid. So you can talk that way. And he refers to himself not as John, but as the elder, 
which of course, if he was 90 years old, he was very much the elder, right? He was very elderly, especially in those days. Now, the audience of 1 John is an early Christian community. Uh, we can't say for sure exactly where they were located, but it would have been the early Christian community known as the Johannine community, or that's what scholars would call them, because they were the, the Christian community that had been very much influenced by the Gospel of John and John the Apostle, just generally speaking, his influence and his teaching. And then what about the reason that this was written? Well, it was written to encourage the, the Johannine community because it had been through some division recently. Some people in the community had embraced beliefs that were not in line with old Apostle John's teaching, uh, nor with Jesus's. And then they had left, they had seceded from the community to go off and try to spread these false beliefs to other people. And so this letter was written to counter those false beliefs and to assure those who were still in the Johannine community that they... they have made the right decision in what they were believing that they should stay the course. So it was written to encourage them and to remind them of these core truths that the false teachers had denied. All right, so let's get into it, starting right from the top. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to dig into the scriptures. And we just want to be open to whatever it is that you want to say to us this morning. Lord, help us to attend to your spirit, to attend to the scriptures. And Lord, even if our minds wander, we pray that you would speak to us in the wandering. Uh, but help us to attend, Lord. We are open to whatever it is that you want to say to us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
All right, so let's go back to the top. John begins this letter by reminding his readers that he is speaking as an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Right? Now, he doesn't use the word Jesus, but he refers to a word of life. What is the word of life? Well, this word of life was there from the beginning, and it is a word of life which appeared and which John has heard and seen and looked at and touched, right? Now, you don't ordinarily touch words. So John is not talking about literal words here, but when he talks about the word of life, he's talking about Jesus Christ. The, the language that John uses here is similar to the language that he used in the opening to his gospel, right? You, you guys will probably remember that prologue to John's gospel where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. So John is saying here, remember guys, I knew the incarnate Lord, I knew him when he was here in the flesh. I even touched him. So what John says should come with a lot of authority, right, as an eyewitness to Jesus. And John says, this is the message that we heard from the word of life when he took on flesh. This is the message that we declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, we can't just breeze over that. We have to take a moment to appreciate that line. John, eyewitness to Jesus, summarizes the message of Jesus as God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So the message that John learned from Jesus primarily had to do with who God is. Who God is. Jesus has revealed who God is. And who is God? God is light. In him there is no darkness. None. Now, of course, John is not talking about literal light here, as if the daylight hours are somehow more imbued with God's presence than when the moon comes out at night. That's not what he's saying. Light and dark here are metaphors for good and evil. And what John is saying is God is good. Full stop. No qualifications. He is good. This is what Jesus has revealed. Have you believed that message yet? Some people have trouble believing it. And I get it. The world has a lot of darkness in it, doesn't it? Tragedies happen every day. Every, pe every day people die prematurely. Every day, injustices are committed, natural disasters occur, lies are spread that ruin people's lives. The news makes a business out of reporting on all the darkness in the world, and there's enough out there to keep 24-hour cable news channels going, right? Darkness abounds. It's everywhere. But here's the thing. The world is not the same thing as God. That sounds very simple, right? <laughs> but we need to recognize this. The world is not the same thing as God. Now, the world and everything in the world finds its source in God. It was created by God. 
It is sustained moment by moment by God. The only reason it exists is because God holds this all in existence every moment. But it is not the same thing as God. See, in creating the world, God created something other than himself. And because of that, the world has a certain amount of autonomy, a certain amount of capacity to go its own way, a freedom. The relationship between God and the world is a little bit like the relationship between a parent and a child. The child finds its source in the parent, and when the child is young, it requires the nurture and care of the parent in order to be sustained, right? But the child is not the parent. The child has autonomy, at least a certain amount of autonomy, right? She can throw a tantrum whether the parent wants her to or not. The, the parent can call her name and she can run in the other direction if she wants. Right? Children have the capacity to go their own way. If you're a parent, of course, you know this. Now, God and the world have a similar relationship. Now, this analogy is not perfect. I'm sure there's ways that people could try to poke holes in it. But I do think it is fundamentally a good analogy because it's one that Jesus used. Right? Jesus referred to God as Father, and he encouraged us to all do the same. So there's something about this analogy between parent and child that helps to capture the relationship between God and the world and God and us. Now, there are some religions out there that teach that God and the world are basically the same thing. Uh, this religious view is what's known as pantheism. Have any of you guys heard this word before? Pantheism? All is one. God and the world are one. But Christians are not supposed to be pantheists. But whether we realize it or not, sometimes pantheistic thinking creeps into our worldview. And it happens whenever we assume that anything that happens in the world is an extension of the will of God, no matter how horrible, right? Because what we are saying, whether we admit it or not, when we say that, is kind of like the world is God's body and God's brain just sends the signals, right? And it's just one big manifestation, perfect manifestation of the will of God. But Christian orthodoxy has never said that. There is a distinction between the world and, and God. Jesus shows us that pantheism is not the right way to think. The world is filled with darkness, but God has no darkness. In him there is no darkness at all. If there is darkness in the world, it is not from God. So instead of thinking of God as the author of darkness, of evil, of injustice, we should think of God as the one who is always at work to overcome the darkness. Like a good parent working to train up a child to becoming a responsible and loving person. God is always at work to light up the darkness in the world. So God is not the pull that we feel in our hearts sometimes towards things like unforgiveness, bitterness, violence, lust. God instead is the still small voice that is always calling us towards things like mercy, reconciliation, thankfulness, peace, love, 
God's voice draws us toward light. Not sometimes darkness and sometimes light. Always light. To say that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all is also to say something about God's will towards us. He isn't out to get us. He's not scheming about how to make our lives miserable. God's orientation towards us is a desire for redemption, to rescue us. He wants to free us from sin and death. He wants us to experience real joy, not some sort of false, superficial joy, but real joy. Now, Jesus reveals us reveals this to us in a lot of ways, but the ultimate way that he reveals it to us is through the cross. We know that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all because God became human and then willingly suffered and died for us. If that is what God is like, then we can say with confidence, God truly is good. No qualifications. Now, John reasons that if God really is this good, then we can't have fellowship with him if we're walking in darkness. So let's talk about that word fellowship. What does that mean? By fellowship, he means something like being on the same team. Now, fellowship is more than just friendship. It's more than just having coffee after service and eating some pastry. And fellowship is more than, than just friendship. Now, friendship is part of it, but it's friendship with a mission. Think of uh, the Fellowship of the Ring in Lord of the Rings, right? That was a group of friends, right? But it was more than just a friendship. It was a group of friends that had a common mission to throw the one ring into the fires of Mount Doom, right? And so that made them a fellowship, friendship with a mission. And so what John is saying is if we are walking in darkness, in other words, if our lives are characterized by evil, we cannot claim to be on the same mission with God. We cannot claim to be on his team. If our lives are filled with dishonesty and greed and violence and selfishness, we don't have fellowship with God. Now, when we read these epistles in the New Testament, these letters, it's a little tricky because we're only reading one part of the conversation, right? So we don't know absolutely for sure what these false teachers were saying. But given what John says here, it sounds like that they were saying that it doesn't really matter how we live. We can have fellowship with God regardless of the kinds of choices that we're making about what we do with our lives. But John says, of course, no. That's, that's completely false. Now, we might ask, well, do we hear anyone making a similar claim today that how we live just has no bearing on our relationship with God? And I do think there are some modern-day parallels. There are some people who claim that if you once prayed a prayer inviting Jesus into your heart, then you can assume that you are on God's team. It's like you signed the eternal contract, and it just doesn't matter how you live your life. 
you could be running a brothel or be a mob boss, but if you prayed that prayer, you're on God's team. You're one of the chosen. You're the elect. Now, I want to be clear, okay? For many people, praying some kind of prayer where they invited Jesus into their life was the start of a life of faith, of following Jesus. It changed everything. It was a moment that they can point to to say, this is where I move from death to life. And so I'm not trying to be cynical about that. That's what that is for many people, and that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But what we need to recognize is that we should never think of prayers like magical incantations, right? God's goal is not to get his children to just recite a formula and then carry on with life in the way that they always have. God's goal is to bring us out of darkness and into life. And so if we are resistant to that goal, if we're like, I don't want to move out of darkness and into light, if we're resistant to that, then we can't say, oh, I have fellowship with God. I'm on his team. We can't because we don't share the same mission. We're not with the fellowship on the way to toss the ring into Mount Doom. <laughs> We're still home in the Shire. Even if we did once say a, quote, sinner's prayer. Now, at this point, I realize that some of us might be getting a little nervous. right? Because we might be wondering, well... Is John saying that I have to be sinless in order to have fellowship with God? Well, John is clear that that's not what he's saying. You may have noticed that when we read through the first time. Because the next thing he says is, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, John really has us in a bind if he expects us to be perfect, right? Because part of it, what he's saying is you better be recognizing that you're not perfect. John recognizes that none of us are perfect. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So, walking in the light does not equal being sinless and perfect. No one is perfect. Not this side of heaven. But what John says is essential to walking in the light is being honest about our sin. The alternative to claiming that we are without sin is confessing our sins. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So one way of thinking about this, okay, walking in the light does not mean being perfect, but it does mean walking in a particular direction. When we walk in the light, we are on a path going in a particular direction, and that direction is toward what we might call holiness or righteousness, right? Living well, living as God would want us to. And what is essential to moving in that right direction, to going down that path, is honesty, truth. When we are honest with ourselves and with God and with others about who we really are, both the good and the bad, 
That is what enables us to grow. Okay, that is the, the soil that a righteous life can grow in. That kind of humility. But when we live with an attitude of self-righteousness, the attitude that says, I'm right, ain't nothing wrong with me, other people are the problem, I'm not part of the problem, that's when growth stops. And that's when we start to walk in darkness. Without honesty, we can't grow. But of course, it can be scary to be that honest with ourselves, to be honest about our sin. And John knows this. He knows it can be scary, right? And so he gives us assurance. He's very pastoral. He's very gentle, right? He says that if we are honest, we will find nothing but mercy from God, right? If we confess, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I want us to notice the promise there is not simply forgiveness, but purification. In other words, transformation, right? That we will move further down that path in the right direction. Now, people wonder sometimes, why does this say that if we confess our sins, he is just to forgive us? Faithfulness makes sense, right? Okay, if we confess our sins, he's so faithful to us that he'll keep accepting us, right? He'll, he'll, he'll keep forgiving us. Okay, faithful makes sense, but just. It seems almost like there's something fundamentally unjust about God forgiving us, right? And yet, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Well, let me uh, give a suggestion. When you hear that God is just, you want to think something like, God is able to make things right. God is able to make things right. God is able to rectify the problems with the world and with us. So what I hear John saying here is this, okay? If we are honest, if we are able to confess our sins, then God will make right what is wrong in us. He will be just in the sense that he will work to purify and refine us. God's justice is his right-making power. If we're confessing a temper, then he will work to make us more patient. If we are confessing greed, he will help us to appreciate what we already have. That is what it means for God to be just, to rectify the situation, to make things right. He's faithful because he forgives, and he's just because he transforms us as he forgives us. But we only access that forgiveness and that transformation if we are honest about ourselves. Of course, what John says here aligns perfectly with what Jesus said in his parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector that go to the temple to pray. Most of you probably remember that story. Right? The, the Pharisee prays with pride and he says, God, I thank you that I'm a good person. 
Basically, that's the essence of his prayer, right? I thank, thank you that I'm a good person. I'm not like that guy over there. And meanwhile, the, the tax collector, he can't even look up to heaven because he's so overcome by the awareness of his own shortcomings, his own sin. And all he prays is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that the one that goes home justified before God is the tax collector. Even though the Pharisee, he's the religious elite. He's the guy who's supposed to be really holy. And the tax collector, well, he's supposed to be the opposite, right? But Jesus says that the one who is walking in the light there is the one who is able to confess. One way, I think, of putting both what John and Jesus are saying here is that the path to being okay begins with recognizing that we're not okay. Sometimes we have to be able to admit, as Taylor Swift does in her most recent single, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. Now, of course, neither John or Jesus is saying that we should just take the blame for everything, whether we're at fault or not. Of course, that's not what he's saying. But what they are both saying is that we all have our own sin. We are all part of the problems of this world. And growth only happens when we're able to admit that. The path to being okay requires recognizing that we're not okay. Now, I love the way that this passage ends. John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. It sounds to me like John is anticipating some of the objections that might come based on what he just said, right? If you confess your sins, you'll be forgiven. So some people might say, well, John, are you just saying we can just do whatever we want and then we just say, sorry, God, that everything's okay? And John clarifies, look, look, I'm not saying this because I want to encourage you to sin. I'm actually saying this so that you will not sin. So that you will not sin. Well, how does that work? John knows something that a lot of people never realize, which is that grace is what makes growth possible. Grace is what makes growth possible. If we think that sin is unforgivable, then what do we do? Well, I'll tell you one thing. We don't stop sinning. We might think that believing that sin is unforgivable will make us stop sinning. It doesn't. Instead, if we think sin is unforgivable, what we do is we hide our sin, or we deny our sin, or we try to convince ourselves that we're perfect and our whole lives become this game of self-justification and defensiveness. Right? But if we know that God has grace for us, then we can actually be honest about our problems. And as we are honest and as we experience the forgiveness of God, we can be transformed more and more. We can walk more and more down that path, the, the path of light. We can be honest because, as John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, that word advocate, it has the connotation of someone who defends us in court, like a defense lawyer. 
When we confess our sins, Jesus comes to our defense. And he says, I have atoned for this. Meaning, I have taken care of it. I have paid the price for this sin. I have done what is necessary for this sin to be forgiven. Now, I want to clarify something. I don't want you to get the wrong idea from this metaphor. Because some people envision that Jesus is defending us, and the one he is defending us to is God the Father. That God the Father is the judge sitting there, and he's like, I want to condemn this person. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you can't condemn this person, right? Because I paid for, for his sins, right? But I don't think that's what this is saying. Notice, Jesus is not an advocate to the Father. He's an advocate with the Father. With the Father. Jesus is not trying to convince the Father to accept us. The Father sent Jesus, right? Jesus is not acting independently of the Father. we got to remember, remember the central message that Jesus reveals. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Jesus' advocacy of us is the Father's advocacy of us. Jesus is not trying to placate the Father. Jesus is showing us what the Father is like. And what he reveals is that the Father is for us, not against us. He sent Jesus into the world not to condemn us, but to save us. And so we can be free to walk in the light. We can be free to be honest, to be authentic, to be real. And as we are, we can be transformed. Amen? Lord, help us to walk in the light. Lord, help us to recognize that we can walk in the light because you, through Jesus Christ, have paid the price for sin. We don't have to hide. We can be real. And Lord, we pray that as we are real, as we confess, as we are honest, uh, that you would be just to transform us and to purify us. We thank you that that is your commitment to us, Lord, to make us more like you. And Lord, we pray that as we are transformed more into your likeness, that we would be filled with your joy. We want to know that joy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.